Okay, <clears throat> today is March 22nd, 2020, and uh, I'm giving this talk here in a very relatively empty Zendo. There are one, two, three, uh, all together there are about eight of us. And um, But I do know a lot of people have told me they're going to listen in, so hello to those people. And uh, we're, we're here in a certainly an unusual situation. I think everybody feels that. Um, I titled this talk, Impermanence and the Virus. And uh, so much that uh, could be said, I'm just going to sort of plunge in and see how much I can stay on track. <clears throat> I... Uh, I don't have great hopes that I'm not going to wander off into this or that corner, um, but it's uh, it's just this is just a remarkable time. Uh, we're really in the midst of a, you might say, a sea change. Something comparable to the Great Depression, two world wars, all of which have happened happened in the last century. So <clears throat> this is. The first big thing, perhaps in in this century, the uh, uh, the 2000s. It's it it's so sudden and uh, overwhelming. It reminds me of uh, <clears throat> the image you read about. Uh, I haven't personally experienced it, though I've seen film of it, where uh, you're on the beach and the tide goes out, and it's the Ocean sucking in the water for the huge tsunami that's about to follow. In a way, we're really here bracing for that inevitable tidal wave that's going to wash over us. And we don't know. We don't know how it's going to play out. Um, <clears throat> we know it's not going to be the way we want it to. Uh, but we just don't know. It's a very big and a scary change. And so the first thing that's really... Uh, difficult for us is just to adjust to that. We're, we're wired to expect business as usual. Uh, we have a <clears throat> we have a bias to believe that things are going to continue the way they have right along. Um, really, today Roshi should be giving the first Teisho of the March session. Um, but here I am, sitting in this zendo with all of you. I was talking with Roshi the other day, and, and uh, <clears throat> we were both commenting on how you uh, you go to Sashin and the weather is one way, say it's warm, and then the end of Sashin, all of a sudden it's freezing cold and you didn't bring any clothes uh, for that because, of course, if it's warm, it's always going to be warm. Like people feel, well, if the stock market is going up, it's always going to go up. I had somebody uh, come to me back in the 1980s, maybe, um, wondering why the center wasn't completely invested in the stock market, because it goes up 30% every year. And, uh, <clears throat> of course, it goes up and then it goes down. It's the same with real estate. Uh, how many people bought at the top of a real estate market because 
they're not making any more land, they're not making any more, so it can't do anything but go up. Um, and back in the 1800s, used to be that you'd buy British government bonds, the most reliable investment that exists. Of course, that went belly up too. Change happens. You know, sometimes it happens gradually and sometimes it happens suddenly. Um, think of back in the 1800s at some point, <clears throat> there were uh, huge solar flares uh, that happened. I don't think that anybody knew that's what it was, but it caused uh, the uh, uh, telegraph wires all across the country <clears throat> to uh, uh, start fires. The whole telegraph system went down and uh, it's just a normal change in the sun. It'll happen again. When it does, it's going to be a lot more disruptive than it was back in the 1800s when they didn't have the infrastructure that we do today. Or you think of uh, situations the dinosaurs were in 165, is it, or 265 years ago? Not sure how long ago that was, but uh, you know, human beings had been around for maybe uh, something on the order of 100,000 years, Homo sapiens. Dinosaurs were here for hundreds of millions of years, and yet in one day, that ended. Uh, meteor came uh, out of the sky. Apparently, if you had been there, you could have seen it for days, glowing as it approached. And uh, once it hit, uh, turned rock into into liquid, threw up mountains the size of the Himalayas in a matter of seconds. And the temperature of the earth went to the temperature of a pizza oven and everything that couldn't hide somewhere in the ground, <clears throat> and the small animals and mammals that could get out of the way, everything, everything died. Uh, the only remains of the dinosaurs now are the birds who are actually dinosaurs, one of my fun facts. There's just a pivot. Everything is going along the way it always has, and then it's different. And we have to, we have to find a way to adjust to that reality, to be able to be okay with the basic uncertainty. As the Buddha put it, there's the inevitability of death, the uncertainty of the time of death. Everything in our normal waking consciousness is built around setting up systems, protections, things that we can expect. And that's all, that's all well and good. We, have, we need to do what we can to sort things out and take care of loved ones and uh, see about getting food and shelter. And, uh, but when you, somewhere there has to be that recognition that all we really have is what we've got right now, this moment. 
this moment that's completely unpredictable, impermanent. It's so easy to let the mind dwell in speculation, anger at others, shortcomings and mistakes. It's especially uh, appropriate to talk about that now with all the news about the progress of the virus, the political mistakes that have been made, management mistakes, the short-sightedness of many of our leaders. It's hard not to get caught up and just, you can become furious if you dwell on that. Is that a good place to put our minds? And, and beyond that, to think that we know what's good and what's bad. Roshi uh, often told the story, I think most of us know it, the story of the lost horse. They, uh, someone living in China, ancient China, near the border, barbarians on the other side and uh, he and his son living together they had a horse and the horse wandered off went across the border and disappeared neighbors came to him and said oh that's that's really it's a tragedy so sorry and the man said maybe it is maybe it isn't and sure enough a few days later the horse came back and it had found a mare, a partner, and now he had two horses. And the neighbors came along around and said, oh, that's terrific, what great news. He said, maybe it is, maybe not. The son uh, was riding the, the new horse and the horse stumbled and the, the son fell and broke his leg. What a disaster. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. And the barbarians attacked and the government came and conscripted all the able-bodied young men, but the son was left because of his broken leg. So things keep going back and forth. If you're somebody who wishes that uh, Donald Trump would leave the White House, well, maybe that'll be one good outcome of all this disaster. Maybe the country, maybe people will see things in a different way. It's certainly going to change us. We don't know if it's going to be for the better or for the worse. We don't need to know. What we can do with this situation that we're all in is to turn our minds more resolutely, more faithfully to the Dharma, to our practice. I went back and looked through the Dhammapada. Uh, for me, that's one of the first Buddhist books I ever picked up. It still speaks to me 50 years later. The Buddha said, as rain seeps through a poorly thatched roof, passion seeps into the poorly trained mind. 
as rain cannot seep through a well-thatched roof. Passion cannot seep into a well-trained mind. What's there more important to do than to find a way to keep our minds clear, to catch ourselves when we slip into fear and grasping, to find that still point that doesn't rely on things being a certain way, in the midst of crisis to be able to turn our mind to what needs to be done and to give up our preoccupation, our insistence that things work out as we wish them to. We have this opportunity, having encountered the Dharma, to train our minds, to make a change, to build that ability to handle adversity. The Dhammapada, the Buddha also said, as irrigators lead water where they want, as archers make their arrows straight, as carpenters carve wood, the wise shape their minds. It's always available, always here, this moment, beyond speculation, beyond our petty concerns, beyond our legitimate concerns. We hope, we hope that not too many people will die. We hope that the people we love will all be okay. So many people. Think of the Sangha, Think of family, friends, all in this together. Our suffering <clears throat> comes from fighting reality, trying to get things to be fixed in a certain way. It's like you've rolled a ball down the alley in bowling. It looks like it's headed for the gutter and you're using body English to try to bring it back into the center of the lane. Things are uncertain and we're not in control. basic teaching of Buddha. Everything is constantly changing. So the last thing that the Buddha said before he passed away, before he entered nirvana, all compounded things decay. Work out your own salvation with diligence. One of the benefits of a crisis like this is that it, it brings it home. It helps us see what's always been there. The Buddha talked about 
how someone hears of a death in a neighboring village. Somebody with a real affinity of, for the Dharma, at that point they realize what reality is, what the situation is. They realize the certainty of death, the uncertainty of the time of death. For others it happens when it's in their own village. For others of us, it's when it happens in our family. And then finally, when it happens to us. It's really sort of played out recently with <clears throat> the virus flaring up first in Wuhan in China, and then in other countries, and then in Italy. It's moving from the neighboring village into our village. We're all living here in New York State, all the states in this country now. The situation is the worst in New York. Of course, for us in Rochester, we're still a bit removed. But everybody's on the same path, it looks like. Something I read um, recently by C.S. Lewis. Really kind of applies, I think. He was talking, this is back in 1948. Um, I'm reading from uh, On Living in an Atomic Age, uh, published in Present Concerns, Journalistic es Essays, written in 1948. And uh, he was talking about the reality of the atomic bomb. People were wrapping their minds around the fact that we now had the ability to blow ourselves up. And he said, in one way, we think a great deal too much of the atomic bomb. How are we to live in an atomic age? I am tempted to reply, why, as you would have lived in the 16th century, when the plague visited London almost every year. Or as you would have lived in a Viking age, when raiders from Scandinavia might land and cut your throat any night. Or indeed, as you are already living in an age of cancer, an age of syphilis, an age of paralysis, an age of air raids, an age of railway accidents, an age of motor accidents. In other words, do not let us begin by exaggerating the novelty of our situation. Believe me, dear sir or madam, you and all whom you love were already sentenced to death before the atomic bomb was invented and quite a high percentage of us were going to die in unpleasant ways. We had, indeed, one very great advantage over our ancestors, anesthetics, but we have that still. It is perfectly ridiculous to go about whimpering and drawing long faces because the scientists have added one more chance of painful and premature death to a world which already bristled with such chances, and in which death itself was not a chance at all, but a certainty. This is the first point to be made, and the first action to be taken is to pull ourselves together. If we are all going to be destroyed by an atomic bomb, let that bomb, when it comes, find us doing sensible and human things, praying, working, teaching, reading, listening to music, bathing the children, playing tennis, especially playing tennis, chatting to our friends over a pint. Now, that's out for me, but <clears throat> over a cup of tea. 
and a, and a game of darts, not huddled together like frightened sheep and thinking about bombs. They may break our bodies. A microbe can do that, a little prescient of him, but they need not dominate our minds. We need to, that's, it's a somewhat different situation that we're in. <clears throat> the atomic bomb sort of comes out of nowhere and it's over in a flash. You know, Yasutani Roshi talked about that uh, fear that so many people had back in the early 50s. And he said, uh, the atomic bomb comes perforce. We will all become one with it. Our current situation is playing out more slowly. It's sort of that drip, drip, drip of events. But it's the same thing. We need to live our lives. We need to do what we value. A lot of people now are isolated at home. Husband and wife living in more, <clears throat> more closeness than they're used to. And if for many people, that's, that's, you know, that raises difficulties. Uh, cut off from other family. I haven't seen my grandchildren in uh, a week or two. But we have the phone, we have FaceTime, ways of connecting. A lot of people now have called friends they haven't talked to in a long time. Those are great things to do, to, to value those connections, value those people. And uh, even if you're unable to go into work, take walks. I know I, I walk Archie, I walk my dog around our neighborhood. And uh, it's amazing how many people are doing exactly the same thing. People I see, they shine. It's kind of wonderful. A lot of good things come out between people in times like these. It's the danger for us is that so much of our time can get involved with following the uh, stream of news. It's so easy to get caught up in that. I've been speaking for myself. Uh, you do want to know what's happening. There's, there's some need to be aware, but it's so easy for it to go too far. Just have to look how things are playing out. How do I feel if I do the things that I value, the things that are helpful for me? For us, as, as Zen practitioners, what better time to do more sitting? What better time to thatch that roof? Find a way to connect more readily and more assuredly to things as they are. <clears throat> Last session, quite uh, fortunately, I think for my mind state anyway, maybe for others, I read uh, from Ajahn Chah, book he'd written, or the book that was uh, taken from his talks, one of a couple books that I've read, and I know there are others. Uh, 
almost everything he's saying about impermanence, about suffering, about no self, the lack of any permanent fixed entity anywhere, all that stuff is so helpful for dealing with adversity. I have a couple things that I uh, want to read from. So I'm going to just plunge right in. I wrote the page numbers down so I can find them. This is a chapter I didn't read in Sashin. Uh, it's called Cold Comfort. <clears throat> and uh, this is from the book Everything Arises, Everything Falls Away, Teachings on Impermanence and the End of Suffering by Ajahn Chah. And uh, the subtitle is Ajahn Chah's Monks Face Illness and Death. And uh, the translator, is Paul Breiter, says the fact of our mortality displays very obviously the three characteristics, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and lack of self. But this contemplation is no study in morbidity. Honest awareness of death can lead to the deathless, just as honest awareness of suffering can lead us beyond suffering. And recognizing, recognizing what binds us to the mundane can lead to freedom. Generally, death is more accepted in Buddhist cultures such as Thailand than it is in the West. And in the monastic environment in particular, there is no tiptoeing around it. Ajahn Chah talked about death in different ways to different people, just as he did with other aspects of the Dharma. When people are a little more high-minded, he said, you can poke them to wake them up. In the early years of Wat Pa Pong, that's the name of his place there, one of the many hardships the monks faced was malaria. There was no treatment available, and most of them became severely ill. He told of how he encouraged the monks to face the situation. And then this is Ajahn Chah. One night, about nine o'clock, I heard someone walking out of the forest. We were all sick with malaria, but one monk was in a really bad way with high fever and was afraid he would die. He didn't want to die alone in the forest. I said, that's good. Let's try to find someone who isn't ill to watch the one who is. How can one sick person take care of another? That was about it. We didn't have any medicine. We had Borapet, a horribly bitter medicinal vine. We boiled it to drink. It was all we had for refreshment or for medicine. Everyone had fever and everyone drank Borapet. If the monks got really sick, I told them, don't be afraid, don't worry. If you die, I'll cremate you myself. I'll cremate you right here in the monastery. Your corpse won't have to go anywhere else. This is how I dealt with it. These words gave them strength of mind. Another passage I want to read. This is from uh, another book, Being Dharma, The Essence of the Buddha's Teachings.
little more cold comfort. So this particular section is entitled The Trapper's Snare. And Ajahn Chah says, No aches and pains in the body, no fever or sickness. Can there be such a thing? We beings are caught, caught in the snares of Mara, the evil one. If we are caught in the snare, Mara can do anything to us. He can afflict us in our eyes, our ears, our limbs, anywhere. It is the same as when someone sets a snare for animals, digs a trapper's pit, or baits a hook. When a bird comes to eat and is caught, what can it do? The snare has it by the neck. Where can it go? It tries to fly, but it can't get away. It struggles, but can't break the snare. Then the hunter, the owner of the trap, arrives. He sees the bird caught in the snare, just as he had hoped. He grabs the bird. It struggles, and if it tries to nip the hunter or peck at him, he can break its beak. It may try to fly, but he can break its wings. It frantically tries to run. He can break its legs. The owner of the snare has all the authority here. However the bird tries to get away, there is no escaping. Likewise, <clears throat> we are caught in a trap. The Lord Buddha was one who saw and knew clearly according to the truth. He was a prince, an heir to the throne who enjoyed all the royal treasures and privileges. When he saw what things were really like, he renounced everything. He clearly and unmistakably saw the nature of ordinary existence and without any regrets left it behind. Seeing it as danger, he fled. Having been born, caught by birth, he saw that he was like a bird caught in a snare. The noose was around his neck. He saw the liability, so he left it all, just walked away. Thus, after his enlightenment, he pointed this out, showing what is harmful and what is beneficial in this realm of uncertainty. He would not allow himself to be submerged and drown in it. He refused to die there. He would not agree to be caught in the noose, so he was able to renounce the world and remove himself from it. Having seen, having attained realization, he then taught us to know about these things. The, <clears throat> the suffering comes from our suppressing awareness of how things are from our hoping that somehow we can hang on to things that we can't hang on to. That's not the nature of our life, to be able to protect ourselves for any more than a short period of time. Once we see it, it changes. You read one more thing here. Going back to his other book, Everything Arises. <clears throat> yeah, stop me if I'm hammering it too hard. But here we go. The time, don't stop me. The time we can be afflicted with pain or illness is always. It can happen at any moment. It's like we've stolen something. We could be arrested at any time because we've done that. That's our situation. 
We exist among harmful things, among danger and trouble, aging, illness, and death reign over our lives. We can't go elsewhere and escape them. They can come to catch us at any time. It's always a good opportunity for them. So we have to cede this to them and accept the situation. We have to plead guilty. If we do, the sentence won't be as heavy. If we don't, we suffer enormously. If we plead guilty, they'll go easy on us. <laughs> we won't be incarcerated too long. When the body is born, it doesn't belong to anyone. It's like our meditation hall. After it's built, spiders come to stay in it, lizards come to stay in it, all sorts of insects and crawling things come to stay in it, snakes may come to live in it, anything may come to live in it. It's not only our hall, it's everything's hall. A virus can come to live in it. These bodies are the same, they aren't ours. We come to stay in and depend on them. Illness, pain, and aging come to reside in them, and we are merely residing along with them. When these bodies reach the end of pain and illness and finally break up and die, that is not us dying. So don't hold on to any of this, but contemplate clearly and your grasping will gradually be exhausted. It's a long process. But to see, and, and, and it, can get, it can get mucked up if we're trying to judge ourselves. If, we, if when we catch ourselves clinging to the wrong things, then that becomes an occasion for beating ourselves up. Now we're clinging to being good practitioners. Totally pointless. Just notice and respond. I'm caught up in predicting what's going to happen. I'm caught up in hoping things will turn out in a way that I have no control over. Notice and let it go. Have to do it again and again. Helps so much to do it on the mat, to be able to continually turn the mind back. But it has to happen also in our daily lives. Just learning to drop things, learning to drop our anger, learning to drop our fear, learning to drop our greed. First to see it, then to drop it. another thing that I read in Sashin again from this book everything arises everything falls away here he says the Buddha taught about impermanence this is the way things are they don't follow anyone's wishes that is noble truth impermanence rules the world and that is something permanent this is the point we are deluded at so this is where you should be looking Whatever occurs, recognize it as right. Everything is right in its own nature, which is ceaseless motion and change. 
our bodies exist thus. All phenomena of body and mind exist thus. We can't stop them. They can't be stilled. Not being stilled means their nature of impermanence. If we don't struggle with this reality, then wherever we are, we will be happy. Wherever we sit, we are happy. Wherever we sleep, we are happy. Even when we get old, we won't make a big deal out of it. You stand up and your back hurts and you think, yeah, that's about right. It's right, so don't fight it. When the pain stops, you might think, oh, that's better, but it's not better. You're still alive, so it's going to hurt again. This is the way it is, so you have to keep turning your mind to this contemplation and not let it back away from the practice. That is, don't spend your time trying to put body English on a bowling ball. Keep steadily at it and don't trust in things too much. Trust the Dharma instead, that life is like this. Don't believe in happiness. Don't believe in suffering. Don't get stuck in following after anything. With this kind of foundation, then whatever occurs, never mind. It isn't anything permanent. It isn't anything certain. The world is like this. Then there is a path for us, a path to manage our lives and protect ourselves with mindfulness, clear awareness of ourselves, with all-encompassing all wisdom, that is the path in harmony. Nothing can deceive us because we have entered the path. Constantly looking here, here, we are meeting the Dharma at all times. Don't make a story out of our suffering. Don't make a story out of our happiness. The happiness he's talking about is not the happiness opposed to suffering, the ups and the downs. It's, it's, it's <clears throat> the ability to be with things the way they are, not to mind what happens. It's a difficult state. I often uh, like to point out what I've read others say, which is, we can develop some degree of equanimity, some ability to ride the ups and downs, but there's always a point where we're not quite able to do it. And that's okay. That's, that's as Joko Beck says, that's our point of practice. If it's all too much, then you have to be with that. It's too much. I'm decompensating. I'm tense, getting caught up again and again in my anxiety. All right, just notice, notice. It's going to change. Everything passes. And if we, if we continue with our practice, it's going to change for the better. Um, <clears throat> I want to add a few more things here from my good friend Anthony DeMello. For anyone who doesn't know who he is, he is a Jesuit priest who was born in India, had a center there in India, and uh, he gave seminars to Catholic lay workers mostly, but also to priests 
all over this country and all over a number of countries. Um, and he was also uh, uh, Vipassana practitioner, I learned, which is probably where a lot of what he says comes from. <clears throat> and he says something here about the situation of our being in this situation where we're, we have so many shortcomings, we're so, we slip away from the Dharma so easily. We're so caught up in wanting things to be a certain way. It's a little section in a book. This is a book I recently found. I'd never seen it before called Rediscovering Life, Awakened to Reality by Anthony DeMello. It's a transcription of a, one of those uh, seminars that he gave. And this little section is entitled, You Don't Want to Get Out of the Mess. It says here, so the first thing, admit that your life is in a mess. And second, this is a bit tougher, okay? You ready? Here it is. You don't want to get out of it. You do not want to get out of the mess. Talk to any psychologist who's worth his name and he'll confirm that. The last thing a client wants is a cure. He doesn't want to get cured. He wants relief. If you don't think you're like this, you haven't looked enough. <clears throat> Eric Byrne, one of your great psychiatrists here in the United States, put it very graphically. He suggested you imagine a client who's up to his nose in a cesspool, okay? Yeah, he calls it liquid excrement. And the client is coming to the doctor, and you know what he's saying to him? He's saying to the doctor, could you help me so people won't make waves? The client doesn't want to get out of the cesspool. Oh, no, 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 get out. For heaven's sakes, no. Just help me so they won't make waves. That's what he wants. He doesn't want to get out. We need to see that we're in this situation and then we need to take our steps to get out. And there are people who have gotten out. You see this, see this in others who have the ability to ride the ups and downs that maybe we ourselves lack. And to some extent, we can see it in ourselves. There are things, you know, if we've been practicing for a while, there are things that we can handle that maybe we couldn't handle so well before. We're all on this journey. We're all working it out, working out our salvation with diligence. Uh, Anthony DeMello's life really changed when he met someone in India who had seen, had seen clearly. And I want to read that. It's in the same book. He's saying, what is this thing we call life? Take a look at the world, and then I'll invite you to take a look at your own life. Take a look at the world. Poverty everywhere. I read in the New York Times recently that the bishops of the United States claim that there are 33 million people in the United States who are living below the poverty line. <clears throat> this was, of course, quite a while ago. I've improved that now in one direction or the other. A distinction drawn by the government itself. If you think that is poverty, you ought to go to other countries and see the squalor, the dirt, the misery. You call that life? Well, I've got news for you. 
I can show you life even there. About 12 years ago, I was introduced to a rickshaw puller in Calcutta. It's awful. I mean a human being. Riding in a rickshaw, you don't have a horse pulling you, you've got a human being pulling you. The lifespan of these poor men is from 10 to 12 years once they begin pulling the rickshaw. They don't last very long. They get tuberculosis. They die quickly. Now Ramchandra, Ramchandra was his name. Ramchandra had TB. At that time, there was a small group of people engaging in an illegal activity involving exporting skeletons. The government eventually caught on to them, but you know what they used to do? They bought your skeleton while you were still alive. If you were very poor, you went to them and you sold your skeleton for the equivalent of about $10. So these people would ask the rickshaw pullers, how long have you been working in the street? Someone like Ramchandra would reply, 10 years. And these buyers would think, he doesn't have much longer to live. All right, here's your money. Then the moment one of these men died, they would pounce on the body, they would take it away, and then when the body had de decomposed through some process they have, they would take hold of the skeleton. Ramchandra had sold his skeleton. That's how poor he was. He had a wife, he had kids, he had the squalor, the poverty, the misery, the uncertainty. You'd never think to find happiness there, right? Yet nothing seemed to faze him. He was all right. Nothing seemed to upset him. I said to him, aren't you upset? He said, about what? You know, your future, the future of the kids. He said, well, I'm doing the best I can, but the rest is in the hands of God. I said, hey, but what about your sickness? That causes suffering, doesn't it? He said, a bit. We got to take life as it comes. I never once saw him in a bad mood. But I, as I was talking to this guy, I suddenly realized I was in the presence of a mystic. I suddenly realized I was in the presence of life. It was right there. He was alive. I was dead. Remember those lovely words of Jesus. Look at the birds of the air. Look at the flowers of the field. They don't sow. They don't spin. They don't have a moment of anxiety for the future. Not like you. He was right there. He was right here. I know that rickshaw puller must be dead by now. I met him very briefly in Calcutta and then went on to where I live now, farther, farther south in India. What happened to that guy, I don't know, but I know I'd met a mystic, extraordinary person. He discovered life. He rediscovered it. And all credit to Anthony DeMello to meet that man and to take it in. There is another way. So he, was, he told this story and, and gave a lot of talks and whatnot. And uh, <clears throat> here he says, six months ago, I was in St. Louis, Missouri, giving a workshop. There was a priest who came here to see me. He said, you know, I accept every single word you've said over these three days, every single word of it. And you know why? Not because I've done what you encouraged us to do, to cut and rub and scrape and analyze, no, about three months ago, I assisted an AIDS victim on his deathbed, and the man told me the following. He said, Father, six months ago, the doctor told me I had six months to live. The man was dying. 
He said I had exactly six months to live, and I believed him. And you know something, Father? These have been the six happiest months of my whole misspent life. Happiest. In fact, I've never been happy till these six months. I discovered happiness. He said as soon as the doctor told me that, I dropped tension, pressure, anxiety, hope, and fell not into despair, but into happiness at last. And the priest said, you know, many is the time I've been reflecting on the words of that man. When I heard you this weekend, I thought, the guy has come alive again. You're saying exactly what he said. Here's a guy who had found it. Here's a man who had found it. The formula is here. You've got it right here. It can be found in Philippians. It's a section of the Bible for you non-Christians. For whatever the situation I find myself in, I have learned to be self-sufficient. I am experienced in being brought low, and I have known what it means to have abundance. I have learned how to cope with every circumstance, how to eat well or to go hungry, to be well provided for or to do, or to do without. That is, I have learned to cope with every circumstance, how to eat well or to go hungry, to be well provided or to do without. And a little earlier, Paul says, rejoice always, rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say it, rejoice. I think of Ramchandra in Calcutta. I think of that AIDS victim in St. Louis. That's what Paul is talking about. I had read it all my life and had never understood it. I mean, it was staring me in the face. I didn't grasp it. the difficulty. We hear the words, we know it intellectually, we need to move from knowledge to awareness. Somewhere uh, DeMello tells about a Catholic priest who was a smoker and uh, <clears throat> wasn't really able to get himself to quit and then he had an x-ray and the doctor said, you know, there's a patch here on your lung. We're going to need to take a biopsy. And he never smoked after that. He said that's the difference between awareness and knowledge. Before he knew smoking could kill him. After that x-ray, he was aware. So that's our practice, to awake to things as they are. not to let ourselves become cut off from this moment. Christianity, they say, rejoice with the Lord. Maybe we would say, be here now. <clears throat> so as Jesus said, recognize what is in your sight and that which is hidden from you will become plain. We're always trying to see what's hidden. Look at what's here. Look at what is simple, basic, direct, immediate. This breath. These feelings in the body. These thoughts that are weighing you down. Notice, <clears throat> notice and respond.
every situation, every circumstance is an opportunity for us. <clears throat> we don't always know that. We're not going to always know that. We can work at it. Stay connected to what we feel, what we know to be important. Be of help to other people. Be willing to accept what happens, even if it seems impossible. Yastani Roshi said <clears throat> that atomic bomb explodes per force. We will become one with it. So grateful for all the people who are practicing to be connected with the Sangha. Friends, family. And this Dharma, this practice, this way that's been shown to us <clears throat> yeah, all I can say is thank you. <clears throat> so we'll stop now and recite the four vows. Roshi. All beings without number, I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot Dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha. I vow to attain all beings without number. I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot Dharma gates beyond measure, I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha, I vow to attain all beings without number, I vow to liberate endless blind passions, I vow to uproot Dharma gates beyond measure, I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha, I vow to attain.